All righty. Well, grab your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Job, chapter 7. That's where we find ourselves today. And uh, I just, you know, you get the you get the email that someone has a a massive aneurysm and and they die within 24 hours. Um, many of you have lived through events like that. You've gotten that phone call before. Um, and I was just reminded again this week how much we need to hear God's message in Job. Because God's message in Job, amongst other things, is about preparing us for the day of suffering. Uh, it's about ministering to us in the day of suffering. Um, it's about uh, seeing what God is up to. It's about seeing in a clearer way who God is as revealed in suffering. And um, I was talking to David Gibson this week. Job is one of those books that I think we all know a little bit about, and that actually makes it very hard to study in a fresh way. I know you've had that same experience with Ecclesiastes. And uh, so it's important that as we, we parachute into Job here, um, that we really hear, we really hear what it's saying and, and not, not jump to a conclusion and think that we already know. Uh, but Job has, has served us so far, and I trust that it's been an encouragement and a help to you. And uh, we're going to pick up uh, Job's response to Eliphaz, um, as he continues to respond to him in chapter 7. Just by way of review, I know we have some new people here. I think it's important just to remember what the book of Job is about. So let, I'll just take just a few minutes and review so it's fresh on our minds as we jump into chapter 7. The book of Job is really about three themes. There, there are three dominant issues that are going on, and um, they kind of fit chronologically in the book. Uh, it starts, um, and I like to think of them as circles, and you'll see why, uh, the first theme in the book of Job deals with the issue of worship. This goes back to the challenge that Satan gives to God, right? Does Job serve you for nothing? Because Satan's premise, his theory is that the only reason that Job is so righteous and upright and godly is because God has blessed his life so much, okay? In other words, God, Job worships God, and he's such a godly guy because God has blessed him. And Satan's challenge, you'll remember, is what? Take all the blessings away, and he will do what? He will curse you to your face. So the first theme of Job revolves around this issue of why do we worship? Why should we worship? Is it just because God blesses us with nice stuff? Is, is that why? And we learned uh, through Job's actions that um, we worship God not because of his blessings, but because he is worthy of our worship. He is intrinsically worthy of our worship and devotion, and that's why we worship him. You remember he says, uh, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, uh, if God graces me with family and, and things and material possessions, that's wonderful. If he takes them away, he has the right to do that because those are all gifts of his grace. But I will bless his name, uh, whatever, uh, whatever occurs. And uh, each of the three themes in Job, it's interesting, as the writer develops the book of Job, each of the three themes revolves around one particular character in the book. The theme of worship really revolves around the character of Satan. He's the guy that comes in. He's the guy with the wrong view of worship that needs to be corrected. And so the book of Job is about 
really reestablishing what true worship is and correcting Satan's bad theology. Well, there's another theme in the book of Job. If I can get my clicker to work here. There it comes. Um, it's the issue of suffering. And this is the one we all typically think of when we think of the book of Job. The issue of suffering is obvious in the book of Job. And again, the reason it's a theme in Job is not just because the book is about suffering, but it's because there is a wrong view of suffering that needs to be corrected. Okay, Just like there was a wrong view of worship that Satan brought in that needs to be corrected, so there is a wrong view of suffering that needs to be corrected. And it has to do with why people suffer. And this topic, this theme, revolves around the character of Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Their view of suffering goes like this. When you do what is right, God blesses your life, right? When you sin, God brings calamity and disciplines you and punishes you. And that was the extent of their theology of suffering. And that's why, as we get into the dialogue section here, as Eliphaz is speaking to Job, and and today we'll see Bildad jump in also, their, their basic premise, their basic message to Job is this. Job, there must be some sin in your life. There must be. Otherwise, all this bad stuff wouldn't happen to you. That's why bad things happen to you, Job, because of sin. And when things go good in your life, it's because you're doing the right thing. And so they accuse Job of some hidden sin that he doesn't want to admit to. So the second theme of the book of Job is really this issue of suffering, and it revolves around the wrong theology of the three friends. There's a third theme in the book of Job, And it's the theme of justice, particularly God's justice. And interestingly enough, this theme revolves around the character of Job himself. Because though he is a righteous man, he's a godly man, what we see, the the chronic nature of his condition, as his suffering continues, God gets down to the heart of what's really going on in Job's life. And we'll start, we're going to see the first hint of it today in chapter 7. But where Job ultimately goes is to stick his finger in God's face and say, God, you are not doing the right thing. I am suffering unjustly, and that makes you, God, unjust. So where this third theme is going is Job is ultimately going to get to a place where he accuses God of being unjust. And that's really, that's really what the whole end of the book is about when God steps on the scene at the end of the book and, and corrects uh, Job's wrong view of uh, justice. Now, the reason I like to think of them as circles is because even though to the reader, to us, there are these three themes going on, the wrong view of worship that Satan brings that needs to be corrected, the wrong view of suffering that the three friends bring that needs to be corrected, and the wrong view of God's justice that Job brings that needs to be corrected, this is not just a, um, you know, a theology class, a lecture that's going on here. This is These three themes God is bringing about right in the middle of a real man's life who is living quite literally at the intersection of all three of those circles. God is going to reveal the true nature of worship, suffering, and justice, not in a textbook, but in a real life, the life of a man named Job. So he is living out. He's he's the lone actor, if you will, whom God is using 
to teach about all these things. And, and as I, I, I've said this before, it's worth repeating again. The thing you need to see is ultimately worship and suffering and justice. Who do those themes ultimately uh, pertain to? To God himself. See, this is a book. Watch this. This is a book about the character of God. It's a book that really gets past the human characters and really is striking at the heart of the most important thing in the world, and that is the character of God, right? Theology proper. Because why we worship God is huge, right? Do we worship him just because of the good things he gives us or because he is worthy of our worship? That speaks to the character of God, doesn't it? Does God just... Is he just a vending machine? I put the right thing in, he gives the right thing out. I put the bad thing in, I don't get what I want. Do we believe in a a vending machine God, a sort of retributive theology, where I do good and God blesses me, I do wrong and God punishes me? Does that speak to the character of God? Man, you better believe it. That strikes at the heart of who God is. So that speaks to the character of God. And finally, do we believe in a just God or a God who is unjust? Do a study of Scripture on the justice of God. God takes that sort of charge of injustice very, very seriously. So really, the book of Job is ultimately about who God is. And that's why, I've told you this before, as you study the book, one of the things you always have to look for is what the characters are telling us about God. What do they believe about God in in what they're saying? And we'll see that in chapter 7 and chapter 8 this morning. So for those of you... Uh, that are jumping in with us for the first time today. That's kind of where we're going. And uh, let's go ahead and pick it up now in um, chapter 6 and chapter 7. Just a review of chapter 6. Job responds to Eliphaz in verses 1 to 3. He reflects on the vastness of his sorrow. Remember he says, if we were to take all the sea in the world and put it in a scale, it wouldn't weigh as much as my sorrow, Job says. Um, He acknowledges that his words have been rash, um, he spoke too harshly, too rashly, too quickly um, when, he, when he bursts forth there in chapter 3. He agrees with Eliphaz that God is punishing him. You know, it's interesting. When suffering happens today in the Christian world, very few people say, you know what, God's in this. Right? We have a practical, atheistic view of suffering in most of the Christian church today. We blame suffering on secondary causes. And what's interesting about Job, even though there's clearly secondary causes, we see Satan, right, in the first chapter. We see the, um, uh, the, um, the bad guys. Who are the bad guys? The um, Chaldeans, thank you. The Chaldeans and the Sabaeans come in. Okay, we see them. But nobody says it was the Chaldeans' fault, right? It was the Sabaeans' fault, even though they were the ones that came in and actually burned the crops and, and took the property. Um, they have a, a theological view of suffering. They see God's hand in everything. That, that's one of the major helpful things about the book. And they agree uh, that God's at work in his life. Uh, he prays that God would kill him and end his life, end his suffering. Uh, I talked to you a couple weeks ago about depression. I read you that letter of a lady who was suffering with depression. And, and a common theme in depression is people will say, I just want to end my life because dying is better than enduring the suffering that I'm in. And that's exactly where Job is. We we see him repeat that a number of times. It's interesting. He doesn't want to kill himself. He doesn't want to commit suicide. He he knows that's wrong. But he turns to God. He says, God, you kill me. You, You take me out and end my suffering. 
And then finally, in verse 10, we saw his encouragement is that he has not denied the words of the Holy One. Uh, he shares that the words of Eliphaz are tempting him to forsake trust in the Lord. What a warning. What a warning, guys. When we minister to those that are suffering, um, he says in chapter 6, verse 14, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. So something about what Eliphaz said tempted Job to just give it all up and say, forget it, I'm not going to trust in God anymore. And then, Tell me where we stop. We stop here. He declares his friends to be deceitful since he came to help but has only caused harm. He asks Eliphaz to show him where he has sinned. And he insists that he is not lying. Is that where we ended last time? I think that's where your notes start today. Okay, but that's kind of where we've been in chapter 6. Chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, is not man forced to labor on the earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I allotted months of vanity, and nights of trouble are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn. You ever felt like that? Whatever the trial or suffering is in your life, and you think, I'm so stressed, I'm so anxious, I'm so, I'm tired, I'm exhausted from the mental strain of the trial, and you think, I just want to get some sleep. I get some sleep, and then I'll, I'll have relief, right? And then you lay down, and what happens? You can't sleep. That, that's where our friend Joe is at. Uh, uh, not Joan, Job. Uh, that's where Job is. Uh, he can't sleep. He's wrestling. The Hebrew is interesting here. It's, um, it's like he's tired, but, but he, can't, he can't sleep. He can't rest. You can see, you know, it's, it's like the gears don't wind down. His mind is racing. He, he, can't, he can't bring it down to, to neutral so that he can, he can rest. And, and notice, too, and, and this is just a hint of where he's going. Look at verse 3. He gives the analogy of a slave, right, a, a day laborer. He says, so I'm like that day laborer. I'm like a slave because I am allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed to me. What's he hinting at there? What's he saying? Did I not give you enough help? Who's he beginning to address. He's not talking to Eliphaz anymore. Eliphaz did not appoint nights of trouble for him. Who did? God. God did. Okay. And he takes a small step down a road that he's going to kick the door open here in a few minutes. Okay? He's seeing God as the one appointing nights of trouble and months of vanity. Look at verse 5. My flesh is clothed with worms and crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. We get a little bit of condition of, a description of his condition here. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. That The text tells us in chapter 2, that he was inflicted with boils, some sort of sores all over his body. And in those days, you know, there, there was no uh, antibiotic, there was no 
uh, topical treatment. There was no, um, what's, the, uh, what's the stuff we're always putting on? Uh, yeah, like aloe vera or um, hydrocortisone or, you know, there's none of that, right? And the only thing he can do to bring relief is he's sitting on the, on the city trash dump, right? He's out, outside the city walls in, in the dump, sitting on a pile of ashes. His, his robe is torn out of his grief, and he's sitting there with ashes all over his body, the, the, really a place of rejection. And he looks and he finds a piece of broken pottery in the dump. And he takes that piece of broken pottery and he begins to scrape the boils because the itching, uh, the burning is so intense. There's no other option. It's driving him crazy. And the only thing he can do is to scrape himself with pottery. You say, well, if you do that, what happens to the sores? They bleed, right? Now, now you're cutting yourself and, and now you're, you're bleeding on top of the sores. And of course, when you have open wounds, then what happens? You get infections. If you put together all of the things physically that were going on, you can study the book and just look at what was the description of his physical ailments. His body was black from head to toe. His eyes were swollen shut. He had uh, sores all over his body that were bleeding, that were infected. Uh, It says here, uh, his flesh is clothed with worms. Again, that's part of what goes on with open sores, open wounds that are not being treated properly. So you have uh, worms and, and other things growing and, and living uh, in those sores. His skin uh, hardened up as it, as it bleeds and scabs up. And then, you know, the drill, it gets hard and then it runs, it oozes with whatever. I'm trying not to be graphic, but that's what it says, right? I'm trying not to be graphic, but that's what it says. That's not working. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I should have excused those with weaker stomachs, huh? Um, but, and the reason, you know, it's in the text. This is the next verse, right? So we're going to talk about it. But, but we need to really, really remember when we think about Job, this guy was, was in a very, I don't, I don't know, unless you've done some third world medical clinic work or something, probably none of us have ever met somebody in this type of condition. You know, we live in a country whose medicine is too good for anybody to ever get here. And that's his condition. He says his days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. You know what a weaver's shuttle is? I didn't, so I I had to Google it. Um, He describes his condition there in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. When you weave, you have these strands of material called the warp yarn that run vertically. And then you have the weft yarn, which is the yarn that you weave in between, up and down, up and down, up and down, back and forth to to weave, right? This little guy here is called the weaver's shuttle. And you can see inside that little shuttle, that little instrument there, it has the weft yarn. That's the weft yarn there. And in these, in these big weaving projects, they would put, um, there's actually spaces between the warp yarn. And on these big, big weaving projects, they would take the shuttle and they would actually throw it right between the spaces between the warp yarn so that the yarn from the shuttle would, would travel all the way down here. Someone would catch it, and then they'd throw it back, and then someone else would catch it, and then they'd throw it back and throw it back and throw it back, and they, it would speed up the process. And this thing is called uh, the shuttle. 
Okay? And that's what it is. And he says, my days are like that, the speedy days. Um, you know, he's losing track of days. You, you know, you've had a condition, you know, and maybe you've been in bed for several days. What day is it? What, what time is it? And you, you lose all orientation. And I think that's what he's getting at here. His days are, are fast and he's, he's becoming disoriented. And maybe the bottom line, the end of verse 6, he comes to an end without hope. And we see him there in that hopeless condition. Verse 7, remember that my life is but breath and my eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. That's interesting. And I told you he alluded to it in verse 3. He's not talking to Eliphaz anymore. Who's he talking to? He's starting to talk to God. Okay, You see that? And he's saying... By the time God takes notice of what's going on in my life, he'll look for me and he won't find me because I'll be dead. That's what he's saying. When a cloud vanishes, it's gone. When he who goes down to Sheol does not come up, he will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. That kind of primes the pump. He begins to address God. He begins to say, God... By the time God notices, I'm going to be dead. And watch what happens in verse 11. Therefore, if God's not paying attention, and by the time he does, I'm going to be dead, why hold back? What do I have to lose? You ever met somebody like that? Their suffering is so great, it's just like, what do I have to lose? What, and it's like there's no restraint anymore. There's, there's nothing holding them back. That's exactly what Job does in verse 11. He says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job cracks. He says, Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you, Lord, you see his finger raised to heaven? Then you, Lord, frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. There it is again, right? I'd rather die than endure this. And Job just turned a very, very significant corner. It's a hinge in the chapter. He's not talking to Eliphaz anymore. He's not talking to his friend. His eyes are lifted to heaven and he is addressing the God of the universe now. And here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. Tell me what his view of God is based on the few verses that we've read. What are we learning about Job's view of God? What's that? Okay, he's not really just. David? Okay. God is in control, but he doesn't care and he doesn't have any kindness. Yes. He's distant. 
In fact, Bildad is going to say in a minute, Job, if you do this and you do that, God's going to wake up from his sleep. Because he seems like maybe he is in control, but, but in some sort of almost um, deistic way. He's just sort of far removed, you know, and yeah, distant. Yeah, I like that. What else do you see? He's intimidated. Job is. Larry? He is losing hope in God. Do you see, do you see as Job's suffering continues, do you see a caricature of God being raised? I mean, read it again. Look at verse 14. You, God, frighten me with dreams. You terrify me with visions to the point that I would suffocate myself, rather have death than my pains. God is a monster. Do you see that? As Job's suffering continues, we see a view of God emerge from his heart. And this God is a monster. Inflicting Job, torturing Job. He just wants some relief to sleep and he gives him bad dreams. All because God is seemingly driving him to die. One of my favorite quotes, and, and I use it a lot, so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a three-quote show, I guess. Remember Tozer's quote in The Knowledge of the Holy? What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us? Isn't that good? That's really true. That's why, that's why, it's, why it's quotable. You know, I've been reading Job 7 and Job 8. Here's what I came up with. What comes out of our mouths about God when we suffer is the true theology of our hearts. Do you see that? What comes out of our mouths about God when we experience suffering is the true theology of our hearts. See, our theology is not best known when life is good. Our theology is best known when we're in the midst of a trial and suffering. Do you see that? And I think as Job lives through this, that's what we're seeing. We see his true view of God revealed. And the God that is being revealed through the suffering is not the God of Scripture. It is not the God of the Bible. It is a God, can I say it, that's graceless, that's mean. Think about, think about the last trial that you went through. You just... Bring it back in, the, in, in, in your minds. The last trial, the last suffering. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be. Think of the last trial you went through. What did you say about God in the midst of that? Can you remember? What, what's the script? What, what came out? You say, well, that's not very fun to think about. I know, I know. But what God is showing us in His Word here is that is part of what God does in suffering. 
What God does, remember suffering is revelatory, right? Remember those uses of suffering? Suffering reveals my heart. And what really is going on here is we are getting a clear picture of what Job really reveals about God. You say, well, why would God want to do that? Because what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If what we really believe about God is some fictitious monster deity who's just out to get us, then we really need some correction in our theology, don't we? Because that is not the God of Scripture. That is not our gracious Heavenly Father. And we see His heart emerge. We see His view of God emerge. Look at verse, look at verse 16. He says, I waste away. I will not live forever. He know, it's, Job knows he's going to die. He knows his death is imminent. And he speaks as if it could happen at any moment. Verse 16, I waste away, I will not live forever. Watch this. Leave me alone. He looks at God and says, leave me alone. Just stop. I've had enough. For my days are but a breath. And what we see in 16, is not just that he's addressing God, now he's turning on God. Did you see the turn? Do you see it? Do you see him? Leave me alone. I think this is the first time since chapter 3 that we see Job a little bit angry. Do you hear anger when you read chapter 7? And it just reminded me, hurt and pain and anger almost always go together, don't they? You notice that? When I hurt, when I go through pain, I am more susceptible to sinful anger. Why is that? Think with me about this for a minute. Why is that? What's that? Because we're weak, okay? Maybe we're susceptible because of our weakness. What's that? It's not fair. We focus on ourselves. ourselves. Very good. Um, Pain and hurt have to be interpreted, right? Right? We we interpret. We interpret all the time, right? We live out of how we interpret things. And what what Wes and, and Henry said is absolutely right. When I hurt, when I experience pain, when I experience suffering, I have to interpret that in some way. And if I interpret it the wrong way, then I can have an angry response, right? If, if, and we don't have time to go to James 4. You know, James says we lust and we don't have, so we commit murder. You know, if I have some desire, some idol, some lust in my heart, and that suffering is challenging that idol, I'm going to get angry because I'm interpreting that in a sinful way. But it just reminded me again that, that pain and anger often go together because pain has to be Interpret it. And I think what Wes said is important too. Do you see Job turning inward here? Do you see? He's turning inward and he's focusing on this and then it's erupting in accusations to heaven. You can see the, you can see that playing out here. Verse 17, what is man that you magnify him and you are concerned about him and that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? What does that sound like? 
That sounds like Psalm... Wait, come on. I just read it this morning. Come on. Psalm 8. Sure. Psalm 8. And, uh, and again, depending on how you date the book of Job, um, if we... Uh, if we date it um, as as happening in the patriarch period, which I think is is the best interpretation, then we would see maybe the psalmist in Psalm 8 borrowing from Job rather than the liberals who reverse it and they say you know that Job is borrowing from the psalmist. But um, but there's a, there's that same material there. But what is he saying here? It's interesting. He's saying, God, why do you care about me? Why do you care about people? We're just dust, right? And we might take that as the psalm does and say, wow, what an amazing thing that God would care about people. I mean, he's the God of the universe, right? He doesn't have to set his affection on us. He doesn't have to be interested in us. But he does, right? That's an amazing truth. But you see here, Job turns it on its head. Because this comes in the context of what? Leave me alone. Why do you care about me? You shouldn't care about me, God. Why? I'm just dust. Don't care about it. Leave me alone. Let me go. Stop afflicting me. It says in verse 18 that you examine me every morning. You try him every moment. Verse 19, here it comes again. God, will you never turn your gaze away from me? Will you never let me alone until I swallow my spittle? You're going to want to know what that means. It means what you think it means. Um. The idea is he feels the heavy, afflicting hand of God so so heavy on him that he feels like he can't even swallow his own spit. Yeah, that's pretty graphic. Well, you haven't found out now. The book is pretty graphic. But that's how much he feels the heavy hand of God on him. Verse 20, he erupts again. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Now he's getting sarcastic. Watch this. Suffering can bring pain. Pain can bring anger. Anger can bring accusation. And you stay there too long, you turn into bitterness and sarcasm. You see that? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? Remember that from the last chapter? He feels like God is bending his bow and the target is right right on Job's chest. Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? You know what's sad about all this? As his view of God emerges... He turns God's care of him into a curse. He sees God's careful interest and the fact that he does care about people and he is interested in the lives of people. He sees that as a bad thing, as affliction, as a curse to be avoided rather than a blessing to be praised. And then in verse 21, and again, I wish, I wish we had the video. Don't you wish we had the video of this? And maybe he says this sarcastically, or maybe through the midst of tears and, and struggle, he erupts in, in genuine honesty. We don't know. 
But whatever the intonation is, verse 21, he, he cries out to God, why don't you pardon my transgression? God, if I've really sinned, why don't you just forgive me? Why do you continue to punish me? Why won't you take away my iniquity? Remember I told you several weeks ago, when you read the book of Job, when you study the book of Job, you want to highlight all the questions of the characters. Remember that? You've been doing that? You've been reading Job, highlighting the questions? Did you see the question he just asked him here? The questions reveal the themes that we just saw, right? Remember the three themes, worship and suffering and justice? The questions that the characters ask bring the reader to focus on those themes. And that's exactly what we see here. We see Job's question bringing up the character of God, right? God, you forgive, right? I thought I read that somewhere. Why aren't you forgiving me then? Why do you continue to afflict me? And he concludes, For now I will lie down in the dust, and you, God, will seek me, but I will not be. He goes right back to where he was. God's not paying attention right now. And by the time God notices, I'm going to be dead. Then what will it matter? He says, God will act too late. Wow. And as he concludes on that note, Bildad can't remain silent any longer. And he speaks. What's the first thing out of his mouth? He affirms God's justice, right? God is just. Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? That's a rhetorical question. He's saying, does God ever do what's wrong? No, of course not, right? God's always just. God always does what is right. And he affirms God's justice. And then he goes where no one should ever go. Verse 4. Job, if your sons sinned against him, then he, God, delivered them into the power of their transgression. Ah! What did he just do? What did he do? David. Do you hear that? He tells Job, Job, the reason your kids died is they got what they deserved. They sinned against God in some way, and they got what was coming. That's the ancient Semitic way of they got what was coming to them. What's that? Yeah, consoling, yeah. How many of you are parents? Just raise your hand. Parents? Okay. Um, What's the difference between you attacking me as the parent and you attacking my child? Can you relate? I remember the first time that we thought our kids were being attacked in some way. Wow. (laughs) 
ugliness coming out of my heart. And Bildad steps over a line here, doesn't he? He goes from accusing, God, accusing Job of sinning to bringing out that his kids obviously sinned. Um, and when Wes said it, you know, how consoling. Obviously, that's not good. But, but do you see, if, if you have a one-dimensional view of suffering, that has to be the conclusion, right? Do, do you see, and I'm, I've done this before, I'll do it again. Here, here, the three friends, here's their theology, okay? If you suffer, here's suffering, okay? Their view is it's probably because you sinned, Okay? That's the only tool they have in their toolbox to explain suffering. We do what's wrong and we suffer for it. And if that's the only tool you have in your suffering toolbox, when you see people suffering, you just go, well, there's a sinner, there's a sinner, there's a sinner, right? You just, that's it. And part of what this book is, is designed to show us is that that's not the only reason we suffer, right? Let's, I know you guys have seen this before, so help me. What are other reasons that people suffer? Yeah, the sin of others. And that's why I suffer. Someone else. Okay, God's glory. We'll put that right here. Self-inflicted. Okay, so, so you sinned. You did something. Sure. What's chapter 1 and chapter 2 about? Satan. Sure. What else? We live in a fallen world. Romans 8, right? The whole creation groans. We live in a fallen world. That's why tragedy and sickness and disease strikes. Okay? And as we've seen, as we've seen in the book of Job, who is over all of these? Who is sovereign and in control, who rules and reigns and uses all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name, as Henry said? Right here, right? And so you see, when, when we... You know how dangerous it is to interpret God's providence? How dangerous is it to interpret the providence of God? Especially when you have a wrong view of suffering. Well, Job, your, your kids just had what's coming to them, right? They suffered, so they must have sinned, because this was the only category they had. But Job has expanded that for us, hasn't it? And the rest of Scripture expands that and says, no, 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 God is over all, and we don't have a one-dimensional view of suffering. Suffering happens for lots of reasons, but praise God, He's over it all, He's using it all, and He will glorify Himself through all of it. Bildad lacks that view. And that's why at the end of the book, Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz will be rebuked by God Himself. Because when he says in verse 4 what he does, you think back to the chapter 6, verse 14, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. If this is who God really is, maybe I don't want to serve him after all. Now, before we get too hard on Bildad, can we be honest with ourselves? We've all done this before. We've all looked at some 
trial somebody is facing and say, well, I know why that's happening to them. I know what their life is like. I know what they do in their personal time. I know what their marriage is like. Don't don't we do this? This is such an honest book because it it reveals... (laughs) It reveals the things that we don't like to talk about. And again, we can say it again with Bildad as we did with Eliphaz. We need to be very, very, very careful when we come alongside to minister to people that are suffering because we, don't, we, are, we are not omniscient like God is. We don't know everything. We don't have all the pieces. And, and even if we did, we don't interpret those pieces the right way, usually. Um, what happens? What happens when when we have this one-dimensional view of suffering? If we take this away and we just we land here, okay, and that's the extent of our theology, right? I sinned and I suffer for it. If I live with that sort of retributive theology. And these are not in your outline. I'm just going to read these to you, and we'll talk about them next time, but it's a, it's a good place to, to flesh this out. If this is where I live, stay with me, okay? But hang on to those notes. Don't put them away yet. If that's where I live, this is my view of God. This is my view of suffering. Listen to what happens. I walk around, first of all, with the wrong motive because my motive to do what is right is because of the benefit, right? If I do what's right... If I do what's wrong, then I suffer. If I do what's right, then I get blessing. So that affects my motive. I don't live for the glory and smile of God. I live for the benefit, right? You know what the second thing this does? It promotes a critical spirit. As I go around judging others based on the outwardness that I see in their life, I see them suffering, I see them going through trial. And I, it cultivates a critical spirit as I judge them because obviously there's some, some sin in my life. I think this promotes a spirit of worry and anxiety. I mean, if this, if this is really true, wouldn't you worry too? That if I don't get it just right, there's something coming to me and being worried and anxious all the time about that? The fourth thing that this does is I think it gives a purely punitive view of God's discipline. God's discipline is just about punishing me. It's not about training me, correcting me, helping me. This leads me to trust in self instead of trust in God because it's about my what? It's about my performance. When I do what's right, God blesses me. When I do what's wrong, God punishes me. It's all about me. We're tempted to interpret providence. We miss the goodness of God in the trial. Isn't that true? If this is the view, I miss, I miss what God is doing that is good. I miss what God wants to do in my life through the suffering, and that is good. And I think the last thing that this does, it pushes grace to the sidelines. It pushes grace off to the side and makes it about me doing the right thing for God so God will do the right thing for me. And so we see that what, what appears to be a very minor view, a very a minor issue of theology, ends up spilling over into a whole Christian worldview that is toxic and destructive. Well, 
Let's stop right there. We'll pick it up next time, and um, we'll continue Bill Dad's speech next time. Let's pray.